Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I know it has been quite some time since I was on the air last. However, if I'm not mistaken, it has been probably at least four days since I was on the air. Although that does seem like a long time um, to me. But the good news to report is that I haven't forgotten about you all. Well, for one, I'm on the air right now, but two... During the time that I was away uh, from podcasting, um, obviously other things came up, but that's not a bad thing because uh, life doesn't revolve around one thing being uh, podcasting. So during this time, I had um, enough uh, preparation to get ready for this uh, segment. And this uh, segment that we will be discussing is the actual Battle of Cowpens. And um, I must say that I'm very pleased uh, to see that um, results are continuously coming in where people, um, you all, I should say, my listeners, continue to remain interested. But then again, um, that's the uh, intended uh, goal. But I'm just glad to know that many of you whom have been with me since June of 2020 are still um, listening and are finding ways to get the word out to others whom are uh, interested in wanting to come to Anchor and also perhaps do podcasting on the side as well. Or make it even, you know, there are people out there who do podcasts um, daily, and that is, you know, in a sense, like a full-time job. Uh, luckily for me, it's just a side hobby, but hey, I do enjoy it. Um, otherwise, um, if I didn't, I, I would be um, a fool to still be on here uh, podcasting. But uh, it is hard to believe, nonetheless, that uh, come uh, the start of next month, it'll be two years since I uh, began podcasting. And it has been a phenomenal ride, and there is probably a lot more to come. So, as I said earlier, this uh, podcast segment that we will be uh, discussing about has to do with the uh, actual Battle of Calpins. But if I'm not mistaken, we learned uh, from the previous podcast uh, about how how uh, Calpens got its name, which I thought was unique. Uh, it is fair to say that we learned uh, where pod where Calpens is located. Uh, it is fair to say that Calpens is not located along the coast of South Carolina. Of course, when I think of the coast of South Carolina, I think of Charleston, uh, Georgetown, Myrtle Beach, uh, Hilton Head Island. Uh, those areas. Uh, Calpens is in the upper country, or what we call the northwest part of the state of South Carolina, right on the outskirts just past uh, Greenville, Spartanburg, uh, near Union, um, in, in that area that's not too far from the uh, South Carolina, North Carolina line. So, you know, here we are now into the uh, middle of uh, January 1781, and we are... Um, how do you say it? We haven't been down, but yet from August of 1780 going into the end of 1780 was one that of that could be best described as being a um, an emotional roller roller coaster for the Continental Army. Uh, it, I, I would say that's um, fair uh, a fair assessment considering that we were routed at Camden due to poor leadership. But yet, prior to the Battle of Camden and in the days after Camden, those um, Patriot forces that were not on the actual Camden battlefield somehow managed to uh, be spared 
to where they were able to disrupt uh, British supply wagons, most notably uh, Thomas uh, Sumter, whom led a, um, a group of 400, um, who led a group of a 400 uh, man troop force that was able to uh, capture about 40 um, British supply wagons. Of course, um, he was caught off guard by uh, Colonel Banastray Tarleton, whom uh, was whom forced uh, Sumter into uh, an, a negotiation or a compromise that meant either being returned his uh, prisoners, whom were taken prisoner of war, or uh, failure to turn over the wagons would have meant uh, keeping the uh, prisoners uh, as a means of what we think of in today's time as uh, holding them hostage. So in the end, uh, Thomas Sumter uh, was reluctant and uh, gave up the uh, wagons to have his um, captured men uh, be uh, brought back to his, um, to his side. So I'm sure many of you are now asking yourselves, what makes this battle, being the Battle of Calpens, so unique? And how is it going to be different given that we are now into the start of a new year? We're, half, we're halfway into January of 1781, and while, yes, there have been other skirmishes, most notably at Blackstock's uh, farm, which was the uh, first um, engagement in the South Carolina campaign where Banastray Tarleton had been defeated, uh, which we learned about from the previous podcast, but now uh, we have to wonder, will Tarleton um, experience a setback at Cowpens that is just on the same level that he experienced at Blackstock's uh, plantation? Or will it be one that uh, won't be as bad? Of course, setbacks can be, in some instances, not a bad thing, but too many setbacks can um, ruin momentum. Too many setbacks can um, damage uh, leadership from within. Setbacks can do a lot of things that... um, have the potential, uh, in this case, not so much for make purposes, but how about break purposes? So our first, our first leadoff question will be the following to this uh, segment of Andrew Waters's To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. Did veteran longtime British officers find Colonel Banastray Tarleton to be somewhat inexperienced. Now, when you when someone says that so and so is inexperienced, does it mean that they could be, could be completely inexperienced altogether to where they have no knowledge of how to um, conduct a um, a battle? That is from a um, from a um, not just so much from a general's perspective, but really from a um, milita- high level militaristic ranking. Um, point of view. Well, you know, it's one thing to say that so-and-so is inexperienced. On the other hand, if you believe that a leader, a particular leader is inexperienced, you would certainly want to make sure that you had your facts straight. Yes, uh, Colonel Banastray Tarleton has been with the British um, military since the time he was of uh, 21 years of age. In 1775, and of course we have to remember in 1781, he's not 27 years old just yet, but he's uh, 26 and a half. And would it be fair to say that there are British officers, well, as I just mentioned a second ago, is it fair to say that there are British officers who have been around 
longer than Tarleton, and they may not hold the same rank as uh, Tarleton has. He, he's a colonel, obviously. But is it fair to say that there are officers whom have been around longer than Tarleton, but yet have not even attained the rank of uh, colonel? Well, when I think of uh, an officer that that's not at the rank of colonel, I tend to think of um, like a lieutenant or, or a lieutenant colonel. So uh, the answer is yes, that there are officers in the British um, Army in South Carolina whom have been around longer than Tarleton has, but yet they are not of the same rank that he is. And yes, they do find, and a good um, portion of these officers do find him to be somewhat inexperienced. They know that he was successful at Waxhaws with the infamous Waxhaw Massacre. They know that he uh, played a vital role um, in um, joining alongside General Lord Charles Cornwallis in uh, routing uh, General Horatio Gates's uh, troops at Camden. They know that uh, Tarleton is a fierce fighter, which is a good thing. They know that Tarleton has his strengths, but they also know that Tarleton is showing signs of weakness. So these uh, senior, or rather I should say longtime British officers, felt that Cur Colonel Tarleton had not effectively planned out for what lied in store as, this, as the Battle of Calpens was about to begin. And we're going to find out here soon why uh, there are there were those uh, from within the um, British um, officer ranks that felt as though uh, Tarleton had. They will explain why they felt as why they believed their reasons for why Tarleton had not effectively planned out this uh, battle better. And there are some very good reasons for it. As a matter of fact, um, I'll go ahead and tell you one man's name right now. And his name will be mentioned again. His name is uh, Roderick McKenzie. Roderick, that's spelled R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K. McKenzie, uh, M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. -E. I know it sounds odd that I might be spelling it out, but there are different ways of spelling um a particular person's name. Well, Roderick McKenzie was a lieutenant in the 71st Regiment. So that means he is a rank, at least a rank below, or at least, or maybe two ranks below that of uh, Colonel Tarleton. Roderick McKenzie opposed Tarleton's decision behind pushing the infantry forces up into what's called the front or the main line without having any kind of backup game plan and there, you know it's one thing to send your uh, to send your infantry forces up into the the main line uh, for battle. The bigger question is is that is that if your main line gets hit upon pretty hard by enemy uh, firing, especially if it's coming from sharpshooters, militia sharpshooters, and the majority of your men are getting knocked down, who's going to come back up and back? Who's going to come from behind? to fill the uh, missing gaps. You know, it's one thing to have maybe two or three soldiers get knocked down or get fired upon and knocked down, but what about having 15 and 20 being knocked down? Is it fair to say that, that the British are going to fight at Calpens 
in a traditional style manner. And what I mean by traditional folks is, you know, that traditional linear warfare where the soldiers are, are side by side. They're trying to, to, and by being side by side, they're hoping to get accurate volleys, uh, meaning that, that all those shots will fire from a good accurate distance range where the enemy will be knocked down from a distance. Yeah, that's great, but when you're going into uncharted territory, there's no guarantee that volleys are the answer to um, to um, beating the enemy. So Ro Lieutenant McKenzie does not like the idea of pushing all the infantry forces up into the uh, main line simply because Tarleton did not have a backup game plan that involved uh, not just having a backup group of men that would be able to protect the um, infantry, the main infantry forces. But what about retreat? You know, it's one thing to um, to get pummeled by enemy fire, but how can you go about properly coordinating a retreat? It would be very, very hard to do. If you can't go about properly coordinating a retreat, then how can you go about splitting up an infantry unit? You know, it's one thing uh, to have your infantry unit out, but wouldn't it be fair to say that you would want to split up your infantry unit so that not everybody gets hit by fire at the same time? You know, shoot, if you sent a group of 25 out on one end, you know, maybe uh, a baker's dozen might get hit by fire, but what about having um, a flank? Or what about having a backup reserve of infantry uh, soldiers come out and somehow lure the enemy into a trap where the enemy or the opposition comes forward thinking that they've just hit this home run out of the park only to find that the enemy has um, reformed and they have uh, plugged their the gaps on their end and now have new units that will um, open a... Um, cachet of um, what do you call it a cachet of uh, fire you know large rounds of fire knocking you the enemy to the ground I I'm not a military um, strategist or strateg I'm not one of those military historians people uh, what I'm trying to do here is give you all the best story there is possible in explaining to you all how this battle unraveled because you know battles have a story to tell but it's more than just an officer saying to his men present your arms make ready take aim fire that's more than just those uh, commands so it may not be the grandest of stories I can tell you all here but it's but what I'm doing is in a sense it's the best that I can tell you all so um, we will uh, keep on um, learning uh, more about this battle um, as this segment goes along. So what we know, what we now know is that uh, Roderick McKenzie, the lieutenant in the 71st Regiment, does not like the fact that the infantry forces, all of them are up in the main line. There is no backup game plan for a properly coordinated retreat, and there is no plan for splitting up an in infantry units to where um, they're not all being used at the same time. So to put it in a nutshell, right now, Tarleton's forces are sitting ducks. By the time Tarleton's forces arrived into Calpens, 
would it be fair to say that the troops are exhausted? How would they have been exhausted? Did Tarleton's troops march constantly, day and night, from the previous um, day, or rather from the previous past two days? They were marching. As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken from the previous podcast, a um, an American soldier who stayed behind being one of those pickets, or what we call guards people, he followed the British, he kept his distance, but yet he ended up being caught, and it was probably fair to say that that was a, a, um, a deliberate lure, meaning a deliberate trap, and by being caught, he basically wanted to delay the British um, from getting to their uh, proper uh, place to where the troops could be um, rested in enough time so that when they when the time came for um, going out into a battle, obviously they, they would have been far more uh, rested, but obviously that wasn't the case. So Tarleton's forces, um, they arrived into Calpens, they're exhausted, but it's not so much from all the marching, but also the deliberate delays caused by the pickets, being the um, Patriot Guards people whom were um, on the lookouts, uh, where, you know, where um, General Morgan's men's troops uh, went onto Calpens, but they needed to have some form of protection from behind that would uh, keep. Tarleton's men from ultimately getting one step, being one step ahead. You know, this is a game of chess here. You know, the Patriot forces are beginning to gradually get the upper hand, but the only way to keep this upper hand momentum going alive is to be constantly engaged in a game of chess. Not so much with the numbers, but from an intellectual mind. Now, given Patriot militia were instructed to fire first, and how many shots did General Morgan advise that the Patriot militia fire? Two. Okay, so given that the Patriot militia were instructed to fire the first two shots, what specific order did General Daniel Morgan give them which was followed upon? Okay, so if you fire two shots, you know, it's one thing to fire two shots, but whom does General Morgan want his Patriot militia forces firing these shots at? He wants his Patriot militia to fire their shots at British officers. And I'm sure many of you are thinking, why fire at the officers and not at the troops? Well, I'll answer that question here in a moment. So there is good news to report. Patriot militia, well, obviously Patriot militia follow General Morgan's request, and they fire at the British officers, and the results that followed proved to be right on target. British military officials of high rank, a.k.a. the elite inner circle, viewed firing upon officers as ungentlemanly. Why would uh, military officials of high rank in the elite inner circle on the British side view this uh, view this um, notion in regards to firing upon officers as being ungentlemanly? 
Well, one thing, it's one thing for soldiers to fire upon one another from opposing sides, that is, soldiers firing upon soldiers. But directly aiming for officers was seen as a violation of protocol. If the officers are shot upon, then whom will look after their units? How can the units without officers function short and long term? British leadership saw officers as being off limits. But for, but for the Southern Continental Army, it's all about fighting unconventionally. See, the Southern Continental Army knows that if their soldiers can fire at the officers and knock the officers down, then who is going to be able to lead the unit or the units? Who's going to be able to give the, the unit or the units instructions on how to properly retreat? Who's going to give the unit or the units the go-ahead to get their bayonets fixed, to lead a bayonet charge, to try to intimidate in every way possible the patriots whom have fired upon their leaders as to what they would dub as being egregious. Another word for egregious being inappropriate. In other words, the British have experienced combat where officers on not just their side but on the opposing side have agreed from the get-go to not have their soldiers fire upon men of high rank. But the rules have changed. And because those rules have changed, the British, here the British are stuck in a world that's conventional, but yet it's a failed system because their conventional methods are proving to be irrelevant. British officers shot upon from Patriot militia might have been seasoned veterans of war, but many had commanded troops whom going into cowpens were not see weren't seasonal, meaning that they were not experienced soldiers. So, yes, you could be a seasoned veteran of war, and yes, you can do everything you can to command troops who have not had any um, seasonal experience. But who's to say that those from below are going to know how to respond when their commanders from above have been hit? And if, and if the commanders don't have a game plan, then how, is the unit, how will the unit or the units as a whole function? It's all about knowing how to function when things don't go right or when things happen, but they happen unconventionally to you. The British, being the largest empire in the world at this time, but also the greatest military force in the world, and now all of a sudden you are being beat in a manner that you have never been prepared to uh, take on. But then again, uh, history has shown that even the British, uh, in leading up to the French and Indian War in 1755, when a fellow British general named General Edward Braddock had been warned by uh, people from within about how he would need to change tactics going into the wilderness, especially in Monongahela. British forces were routed. Braddock died. George Washington, 
was there accompanying Braddock. Washington was the hero for the British. He, he was somehow spared. The French and Indians tried to fire at him, but somehow he, he was able to elude their um, firings. But he rescued well over 200 men at best whom uh, survived. But had it not been for General Washington, or not General Washington just yet, but a perhaps a Lieutenant Colonel Washington at Monongahela in 1755, every, every other uh, British soldier of that time who survived would have met a different outcome. Washington saw something at that time that would prove to be useful 20-some years later. After 15 minutes into the Cowpens uh, battle, did Colonel Tarleton make adjustments? Yes, but the modifications made were in the midst of enemy fire when new regiments couldn't foresee what lied at stake. One modification on Tarleton's end saw him order up a reserve cavalry unit of 200 dragoons whom sought to catch Patriot forces off guard along their western flank, or I should say rather their left side. Another move had Tarleton call out reserve infantry shortly after the dragoons had been positioned along an eastern flank. The dragoon and infantry saw Patriot militia retreating. Ah, so now the dragoons and the infantry see something that means that there is a break in the Patriot militia line. Oh, we've seen this before. History has shown so far in these six years of fighting against these uh, Patriot, a.k.a. rebel forces, that the militia have, have um, come out to the front, uh, the front lines only to chicken out. We've seen the militia lines break at Kipps Bay, Brooklyn Heights, Long Island, We've seen them break at Camden, South Carolina. Where else could they break next? Is it happening here at Calpens? One for the thumb? You know, five fingers on your hand? Is this, is this going to be another charm? Well, it turns out that the militia have held their ground, but they are retreating, but there is a reason for the retreat. Could it be that the militia are retreating as a means of trying to catch Tarleton's uh, dragoon and infantry forces off guard. Yes, there is a there is al already a game plan in place, folks. So yes, the Patriot militia are retreating, and the British infantry and dragoons now are under the assumption that the militia is in panic mode. However, General Morgan issues a counter-assault attack led by Lieutenant Colonel William Washington's dragoons, whom repelled the British dragoon advance charge. I tell you, if uh, General Morgan didn't have this counter-assault attack plan lined up, it's fair to say that the British would have gotten a huge break uh, in the overall um, swing of momentum. Some militia troops did flee, folks, but the majority held their ground thanks in part to Lieutenant Colonel Washington's charge. And as I said just a moment ago, had it not been for this charge, that is, Washington's charge, the militia retreat would have been more widespread. 
And I know that General Morgan told his militia, hey, don't retreat. I mean, if you're going to retreat, remember what we said. Do not run like there's no tomorrow. It's a co this, is, this is a coordinated retreat. But you also, at the same time, retreat as though you are trying to catch the enemy off guard. But we will, we've already got a game plan in place that's going to um, throw them for an even bigger curveball. All right, despite the Patriot militia having retreated, were British soldiers properly in line per their pursuit of the enemy? It's always easy to assume that when um, one side is retreating, or a particular unit of one side is in retreat, that the enemy, who is in pursuit, has everything just lined up, ready to go, going in for that instant uh, kill or just ready to hit um, a home run out of the park. Do any of y'all truly think that the British soldiers were properly in line per the, in pursuit of the enemy, given that the Patriot militia has, is retreating? No. And could a lot of this have to be with the fact that um, by the time Corn, uh, that by the time Tarleton's troops arrived into Calpens, to be prepared that they were still exhausted from all this marching? Yes. It's fair to say that Tarleton's troops did not get the proper rest they needed, and they are pretty much making the same mistake that, that General Horatio Gates made at Camden, not just so much with the rest part, but just the whole strategy itself. But the bottom line is, is that there are similarities between the debacle at Camden and what is un ensuing with um, Tarleton's game plan. But Tarleton's, um, the problem now that Tarleton's facing is that he has got a huge shortage of able-bodied officers, given that so many British officers now were either dead or wounded from militia sharpshooter firings. So, if you have a majority of British officers either dead or wounded because of these militia sharpshooter firings. And these militia sharpshooters, they know what um, fighting in war is all about. I think it's fair to say that the majority of these militia sharpshooters had served in the uh, Seven Years' War, French and Indian War. And if they hadn't, they know what it's like to... Um, they just know what it's like to, um, to know how to... Um, fire from long range you know if you're out hunting in the woods you know you're not going to be able to just walk up 25 yards from your um from a deer and just fire right away knocking the deer to the ground even those whom are of um who possess great sharpshooter skills are also should also remind us that they are also very good hunters they go hand in hand so Tarleton's in a, it's fair to say that he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. He's got a, he already is now facing a shortage of able body officers, given that so many of them are either dead or wounded from these militia sharpshooter firings. But fewer officers simply means that there is a greater likelihood of ill-coordinated charge advancements. So it's one thing to start chasing an enemy, but if you don't have, um, adequate leadership telling you how to form in line, how to um, assemble 
then how are you going to know what direction to go? How are you going to know when to stop? And how are you going to know when to fall back? How are you going to know uh, when it's safe to advance? There are a lot of unknowns. What I can tell you this is that had there not been as many officers dead or wounded, and they were leading this charge, I think it's fair to say that they probably would have sent a sing would have set sent out a set number of men to lead the charge, but to have a certain number of men back, so that if in the event the first wave of British soldiers lead the charge, lead the assault charge, that if their plan doesn't work, you've got enough soldiers behind whom can fill in the plug or the void and be able to repulse a Patriot advance. There again, this is a game of chess right here, folks. You know, a game of opportunities knowing how far to uh, send the enemy out and chasing its opponent, and then the opponent luring his enemy into a trap. In other words, we're going to retreat, but we're not retreating to end the battle. We're retreating because we want to get you as far away from your uh, comfort zone area so that once we've got you in the trap, you're going to run the risk of being annihilated by a, by a great um, array of uh, special forces whom are hiding in other uh, spots that you cannot detect any one of them um, based upon their uh, location of, of hiding. Although Americans retreated, the retreat itself was well coordinated. No chaos. Hey, that's good to report. But British forces are now at the hill. They are now at the hill where the American forces once stood. And now they are about to begin their assault. But it was one where everyone, folks, got sent down the middle. Is that not crazy or what? To send all of your troops down the middle to pursue an enemy. Is it fair to say that it's that it would be considered a huge tactical blunder? Another word for blunder being an error? I would say so. And if any of you all remember uh, the movie with the late Heath Ledger, Mel Gibson, The Patriot, that came out back in 2000, I'm sure many of you all are wondering what battle at the very end of the, move, uh, of the movie prior to the very end when there was a brief uh, clip showing of Yorktown, what battle, it was in South Carolina, what battle um, took place? You know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, the militia, I, I remember a scene where Mel Gibson said that uh, Cornwallis has no respect for the militia. And then one of the officers said, you know, from time to time we've seen our militia break. Kipps Bay, Brooklyn Heights, Long Island. Why should we risk the using the militia right away? Well, uh, Mel Gibson said, you know, yes, Cornwallis has no respect for them, but I do believe we can do something differently. 
In other words, we'll have the militia fire the first two shots, but we won't have everybody, that is, not all the Patriot forces will be up at the same line. Once the, once the militia retreats after their second shot, they will return, they will go back, but, we will, but they will be surrounded by a barrage of other uh, forces whom will pour deadly assault fire. Of course, Mel Gibson didn't say all this, but this was the plan, folks. So, to sum it up in a nutshell, that battle in South Carolina for the Patriot was the equivalent of the Battle of Cowpens. So if that tells you anything right there, folks, uh, that's, that's the true um, significance of what we're getting at here. So the blunder, in a sense, from the movie, uh, the man who played General Lord Charles Cornwallis all of a sudden got this notion that, oh, the militia are treating. Send our British infantry, send the infantry all the way down the middle. Let's crush this rebellion once and for all. Well, even Cornwallis's officers looked at him and said, um, that's not a good idea to send everybody down there. Who's to say that if you send all of our men down the hill to chase them, that who's to say that, that they might even come back alive? Well, it, it did happen, folks, uh, that Tarleton sent all of the men from the hilltop all the way down he sent them all the way down into into the middle. He didn't have anybody, he didn't have units branched off from the far left side or the far right side, what we think of as flanks. He sent everyone down the middle. And at some point before the battle even ended, another officer said, if we wheel right, we might just be able to catch them by surprise in an ambush. Cornwallis said, in your dreams... In other words, Cornwallis was being very um, pompous. He was being very self-centered. He truly felt that if he sent everyone down the middle, and this was in the movie, and I, and I know I just said a moment ago that Tarleton was the one that sent them down the middle. Well, let me just say this, folks, right now. The movie got it wrong. Tarleton was the one that led that instructed his troops, or the troops for that matter, to go down the, um, down the hilltop. Tarleton was the one that made the blunder, but in the movie, Corn they, they, they needed someone to really blame high up, being General Lord Charles Cornwallis. So, yes, The Patriot was a good movie, but even that movie alone did not get some things right. So sometimes even the movies themselves... Uh, don't always get things right. But nonetheless, a great uh, movie from a Revolutionary War uh, perspective. The moment uh, Tarleton instructed a downward assault from the hilltop, General Morgan ordered his troops to fire right at them, with bayonets fixed shortly afterwards. Bayonets fixed shortly afterwards, folks, a bayonet charge. I bet some of you might not know um, how bayonet came from. Uh, real quick, there is a place in France called Bayonne, France, and that is how bayonets evolved. And there is a place even in New Jersey, not too far from the New, New Jersey, New York City line, called Bayonne, New Jersey. It's, lo it's uh, located outside of uh, Edison. 
As the bayonet charge was about to begin, Lieutenant Colonel Washington's dragoon forces conducted a sweep. And what I mean by a sweep here is a swift charge advance within the rear of the American line and attacked Lieutenant Roderick McKenzie's 71st Regiment's flank and rear. The charge advancement now had the, the makings of an all-out Patriot assault, resulting in a British rout. I tell you, this is a day that might live in infamy for uh, Colonel Banastray Tarleton. I mean, he already got defeated for the first time uh, just a few months earlier in November of 1780, but the rate things are going now, it's not going to get any better. Had the British flanks on their east and west end corners maintained proper position? No. How so? Both flanks got surrounded by General Morgan's troop forces that ultimately prevented them from retreating. But this um, tactical move is one that has seldomly occurred, and when it does occur, it is a uh, monumental um, achievement. General Morgan's tactic was known as a double envelopment, which meant here that both British flanks on their east and west end corners were attacked at the same time, resulting in advancement towards the center. Okay, remember the British were advancing towards the center, but they did not have any escape routes on their left or their right. See, if Tarleton had been smart enough and broken up the his forces and said, okay, I'll send part of, part of my uh, units or regiments or what I have left that's doable to fight will go into the middle, but I can detach uh, sides on the left and the right that are not close enough to the center so that if in the event the center gets caught, that there still is a chance that either the left, or my left-hand side or my right-hand side, one side is protected, but if there is a likelihood that both sides are protected, that assures me right there that one of those sides has the capability of launching a, an ambush by uh, forming in a different uh, direction to where if General Morgan's troops are in the center and are now firing straight on in the center, if there was a detachment on the left or right-hand side, then an ambush comes up out of nowhere to where there still is hope that Tarleton's forces might still be able to pull off a victory given what they've already endured. How many officers under the 71st Highlanders British Regiment went into battle at Calpens? I'll give you a number range. It's between 15 and 20. The answer is 16. Now, why is this? Why are these numbers that we're going to be discussing important? Well, it, it turns out, folks, that um, that nine being the number of officers that were either um, dead or wounded. Okay, so nine out of 16 officers are either dead or wounded at Calpens from um, the 71st uh, Highlanders uh, British Regiment. New recruits uh, from the British 7th uh, Fusiliers are now leaderless due to their commander being shot. And not only were there, uh, was their commander shot, 
they went about throwing down their weapons and asking for quarter. Okay, when I say, when, when, an op, when a soldier says, quarter, quarter, they're not talking about coins, people. We're talking about a peaceful surrender. Well, Americans oversaw, American officers oversaw that their troops' discipline stay intact during the British troops' surrender. The process, or the surrender process alone, saw no hostilities take place. That's a complete reversal compared to what happened at Waxhaws uh, when, when the uh, truce flag got put up at the very last second. And who's to say that if it had been put up a little bit sooner that there would have been a peaceful surrender. But sadly at Waxhaws, 113 American soldiers lost their lives. And largely that was due in part to um, a soldier on the American side uh, firing... He did not hear the uh, proper command for surrender, and he fired and hit Tarleton's horse, only for Tarleton's men to take their anger out on the soldiers and by massacring 113 of our men. And, of course, as we have learned, that Tarleton was one of those officers whom uh, actually tolerated um, violence. Not We're not talking just firing at the enemy, but by uh, mercilessly... Um, hurting uh, soldiers, not just hurting soldiers in terms of massacring them, but hurting uh, innocent civilians, uh, women and children. So it's fair to say that, uh, that the American officers were not about to make the same mistake as British uh, leadership under uh, Colonel Tarleton and other officers had done at uh, Waxhaws, which led to that infamous rally cry on the Americans whom survived being, remember the Waxhaws. Colonel Tarleton made one last-ditch attempt in getting what was left of his cavalry troop forces to fight despite the dire situation. Patriot sharpshooters fired to where Tarleton's horse was shot from beneath him. <laughs> Tarleton tried saving his artillery, but the charge alone was thwarted by Lieutenant Colonel William Washington's cavalry. You know, as they say, sometimes uh, certain uh, Property items can be replaced. You, the individual, can't. But, of course, it's not like Colonel Tarleton could just go to, to a supply store and acquire more artillery at his own leisure. Sometimes what you have may be all that you have left. And if it's not there, you might be up a creek. So I can understand on one hand why he was trying to save what was left of his artillery, but it didn't get him very far. How many casualties do you think there were that the British endured? A hundred. One hundred uh, British casualties, including 39 officers. There were 229 wounded prisoners and 600 unwounded prisoners. The Patriot forces captured such things as two artillery pieces, 35 wagons. That's a lot of wagons right there, folks. And they've been some of a lot of those wagons probably had a, a supplies, all kinds of supplies, and how about a hundred horses? My gosh, it's one thing to get from point A to point B by foot, but fighting in South Carolina, I mean, I think you could probably say it in other places, but most notably in South Carolina, what are uh, soldiers in need of? What are cavalry forces in need of? Horses, 
So an extra 100 horses to me goes a very, very long way in terms of, in terms of um, obtaining something of um, prized possession. Did General Lord Charles Cornwallis ever make it to Calpens prior to the battle commencing? No. So let's keep that in mind, folks. General Cornwallis did not make it to Calpens. So in the movie The Patriot, just be reminded of the fact that Hollywood wanted us to believe that Calpens, that uh, Cornwallis was on time for everything. But let's remember that historians know that Cornwallis was not at Calpens. He was only 25 miles away, meaning that General Morgan had little time for conducting major celebrations. Morgan knew his flanks needed protection. So look, you've won a battle, but you can't sit back and have a party like there's no tomorrow. The Battle of Calpens uh, did save half of General Greene's army. Well, think about it. General Greene was not there. He was east of Calpens. But a good majority of uh, Cornwallis's army got destroyed. That's, that, hey, we can't argue there. The victory at Calpens by Patriot forces helped raise morale. Included seeing, this also included seeing an increase in large numbers amongst Southern militiamen. You know, the way I see it is that Calpens was kind of like the equivalent of a Trenton. You know, there needed to be some kind of big slam dunk victory. Yes, we've seen some skirmishes that have halted British uh, movement. Blackstock's farm was the first big, that was probably the first um, important victory. It was probably what I would think of as being a medium victory, but Calpens is the big one going into early 1781. And yes, it helps raise morale and and an increase in, in, in numbers for the Southern Continental Army, which is a huge blessing. Did Colonel Bannistry Tarleton receive a fair share of criticism for defeat at Calpens? Yes. For starters, Colonel Tarleton rushed his troops into battle considering the previous night's march had been tense, meaning his men were not fully rested. Secondly, Tarleton spent little or no time conferring with his senior officers. This, is, this to me, is the worst blunder right here. He didn't confer with his senior officers, whom could have overseen to it that he did not rush into decisions which ultimately backfired. Yes, had Colonel Tarleton um, conferred with some of his senior officers, there is a likelihood that maybe things could have been different, but we'll never know exactly just how different they were. The bottom line is, is that General Daniel Morgan was already one step ahead, and we're not just talking about a day or two before. General Morgan knew what he wanted to do. He had already assembled where every unit was going to be. And because he had that in plan, yes, we sustained some casualties, but nothing compared to what Britain sustained. We didn't lose any officers. Britain lost 39. And had we not shot down many officers, officers would have still been there guiding their troops. 
And because those officers were shot down, the troops didn't know, the troops below didn't know whom they could fall back onto for support. So Colonel Tarleton did spend too much time and energy by engaging, to me, in the practice of what's called micromanaging, where he tried doing too much on his own without consulting amongst officers who had more expertise based upon their years of military service. Cornwallis did place too much faith in Tarleton, but a lot of this was based upon force size, a.k.a. numbers. Yeah, you can have all the numbers, and you can, meaning you can have all the size you want, but that doesn't mean that you're guaranteed a victory. Whereas for Generals Nathaniel Green and Daniel Morgan, they relied upon strategical planning and unconventional tactics in defeating an enemy. Hey, sometimes you have to be uncommon. And common people sometimes don't always go in the direction they want to go. As a matter of fact, I remember in the movie uh, Miracle, uh, Kurt Russell, who played the late Herb Brooks, who coached the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team, Long story short, the team um, played a game against uh, Norway, and this is a true story of what happened. They tied, and uh, Kurt Russell, or Herb Brooks, uh, did not like his team's performance that night. He thought that they were just not playing up to where they should be. They tied a team, being the Norway national team, that was one of the weakest on this uh, tournament. So after the game, he uh, had them stay out on the ice for a few hours, doing herbies, or what are called suicides, going from one end to another. He was basically trying to, one would say he was trying to basically break them down emotionally, but what he really was trying to do was make them realize that, look, just because you're on this team, it doesn't mean that you're, guar that, that it doesn't mean that you're going to be uh, guaranteed to have a roster spot within a week's time. It doesn't mean that you're going to be guaranteed to have a spot on the roster come uh, February of 1980 with, when the 13th uh, Winter Games uh, began in Lake Placid, New York. But he did say something that night. He said, you know, this can't be a team of common people. Common people go nowhere. You have to be uncommon in the way you play on and off the ice and you just have to be uncommon in the way you go about doing things in order to be able to be not only a good player, but to be a good teammate and to also function as one unit. This cannot be a team of I, me, myself. It has to be us, we, ourselves. And for Generals Nathaniel Green and Daniel Morgan, strategical planning and unconventional tactics means that we have to be uncommon in the way we pursue the enemy. We can't go linear warfare. One major battle, linear warfare, will destroy this army. But over time, if we keep wearing them out by doing things unconventional, their size, their size and numbers, that will really no longer be relevant. So, folks, that's the Battle of Calpens for you. I believe it's fair to say we covered a lot of ground. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be in part three. And believe it or not, in part three, we're going to be talking about a race to the Dan. And I'm sure many of you all were wondering, when were we going to actually get to this race to the Dan? 
Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again. And uh, thank you for being great listeners. And wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe and continue to get the word out on Anchor Podcast. It is a great way um, to share what, what any of us enjoy sharing that's relevant. Take care for now and stay safe.